0: Hi, I'm Heather Bowerman, CEO and founder of DOT Lab. And FemTech for me is tech that is not just for men.
1: Welcome to FemTech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is brought to you by Withem. Withum is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated FemTech team is a proud partner with the members of the FemTech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash FemTech. Okay, fem fans, in today's episode, I interview Heather Bowerman, the COO and founder of DotLab. DotLab is a women's healthcare technology company with a breakthrough non-invasive blood test that aids in the diagnosis of active endometriosis. Today, 1 in 10 women and people with menstrual cycles suffer from endometriosis. But an endometriosis diagnosis takes an average of 7 to 10 years. That's 120 excruciating periods to go through to finally get a diagnosis. The lack of innovation in the space is because painful periods have been normalized for far too long, and there aren't enough tools to catch the disease early. Dot lab measures microRNAs in the blood, which act as unique signatures to identify active endometriosis across all stages of the disease, regardless of hormones, cycle, or symptoms. Super interesting work, super important work. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. We just realized that we got introduced back in September. It is now April um, by Eric Don. Eric's so great. He's the best. Thank
0: you, Eric. And I'm so excited to finally sit down with you, Brittany. And it's amazing how FemTech has grown and um, just expanded in so many ways ever since, um, even since September when
1: we first met. So thanks for everything you're doing to spotlight women's health and femtech. It is literally my pleasure. Um, around this time last year, I had an intern actually make a graph of Google searches for the word femtech and it was on the rise, but we recently redid it. And I'm talking about like the hockey stick of the century. (laughs) It is like directly up over the, uh, 2020 was crazy. Everyone was Googling femtech. Wow. Well, I think your show is playing a big part in that. Yeah, no joke. Hope so. Hope so. <laughs> um, I think it's also how a lot of people find it, though. Too right, they look up the word and then they're like, oh, "There's this podcast. Wow, this lady's kind of weird and funny. <laughs> <laughs> like she you knows things." At least that's what I hope people think. <laughs> uh, well, we always love to kick off our interviews learning more about our guests. So why don't you give us uh, your story in terms of where you're from? You know, what did you study? Did you have a career before this? And how did you end up here? Sure.
0: That sounds great. Well, I am originally from the Central Valley in California, and I went to Berkeley for undergrad and studied bioengineering. And so that involved taking all the prereqs to graduate from the College of Engineering. So material science, electrical engineering, computer science, um, all the pre-med classes as well. And I took as much as I could. Um, Outside of that, I took some business classes, French classes, et cetera. And I think looking back, um, a turning point for me was um, I did an honors thesis as an undergrad on vascular stents. And, you know, should they be coded Um, or uncoded in order to drive the best results. And it was like this kind of, um, you know, light bulb moment for me as a young kid or student, where I realized that there was this whole world out there of, you know, you don't need to go to, or, you know, there are more ways to impact patients in the world than going to medical school. So I got really excited about devices and diagnostics. And so, Shortly after that, I moved to New York City and started doing biotech investing. So, one of the deals that stands out to me kind of early on, um, this was back in the mid 2000s, was um, around um, H5N1 and H1N1 point of care diagnostics, and just really got a crash course kind of in the whole ecosystem that existed at the time. Um, And I got got the chance also to, uh, following that, to work in the Obama administration doing science and technology policy, so worked on the America Invents Act, um, or these were things going on at the time in the office that I got to be a part of, um, a strategy for American innovation, looking at ways that we can take science and technology out of universities and federal labs and get them into the hands Um, you know, of entities that can help see them to commercialization. Mm -hmm. So um, I had a few experiences that really gelled my passion for moving science and technology from lab to market or that whole commercialization process. Um, I went back to school and um, while I was getting a master's, one of the opportunities that I had um, looking back that was really, really helpful was I was a research fellow um, in the Office of Technology Development, which is the tech transfer office at Harvard, so I was looking at you know new IP and assessing opportunities for commercialization in that capacity. Um, I was also a McKinsey consultant doing healthcare and technology consulting uh, based out of Boston. That was um, so helpful for so many reasons, but um, you know you really get. A bird's eye view of the healthcare ecosystem um, in that capacity as a management consultant, um, and then I um, I knew that I always wanted to work on the operating side, building companies. Um, while I was in Boston, I got to work at uh, some other funds part time as well, so still kind of seeing the investing side. But really, what I was curious about was just you know the entrepreneurial journey, this whole lab to market theme, and um, I was still really into. Diagnostics and and devices and and that world. So, um, in in the Bay Area, I joined a diagnostic startup as the um, the business operations leader and really cut my teeth in the startup world doing that. And you know, then um, I started looking into women's health. the The company and this was outside of work. The company that I was with at the time. Uh, wasn't focused in women's health, but you know, I, I started thinking about my own um, journey to have a child. Um, I uh, I got married around that time and uh, really started researching endometriosis in particular when I learned that it's the cause of over half of unexplained infertility. It uh, affects one in ten women worldwide. And so many women experience just absolutely debilitating chronic pelvic pain that is life altering, life shaping in, in so many ways. And the standard of care for diagnosis is a type of really expensive surgery that patients often have to pay for out of pocket called laparoscopy. And the journey to even getting a diagnosis for the fraction of women who do is long. We're talking years. Different sources say different things. Um, I've seen four years, I've seen 11 years, you know, whatever the right number is, it's a really long journey. And that means that all the therapies that are out there that could help patients, um, you know, in the meantime are not (laughs) being offered because patients don't know for sure that they have endometriosis. So um, I really just started reading articles on PubMed thinking, how could this be the case that this disease is one of the most prevalent in all of medicine, yet there's been little to no innovation on the diagnostic side? And what I saw was uh, just countless articles looking at protein based approaches. So, CA125 is a really common biomarker um, that so many scientists over the years have looked at for endometriosis. But ultimately, on its own, it's not sensitive or specific enough to yield a commercial test. So um, I came across one paper um, out of a medical school that was looking at a non-protein-based approach and got really excited. And, um, and so I just went down you know, that rabbit hole. Um, ended up reaching out to the lead scientist on the study, uh, flew across the country to meet him because I was just um, I, I, I was just compelled in a way that I can't describe to look into this further. And um, ended up spending the following year um, working on getting the exclusive license to the intellectual property um, and said, you know, hey, I think this is really special. Is there IP around this? Um, really taught myself how to assess that. And um, then the, uh, the prior uh, technology transfer experience came in handy um, when working on, you know, getting that early foundational IP. And uh, that came through in 2016 um, and fast forward five years. And uh, we've been doing clinical studies ever since. Um, the data continues to be so promising and we're really just um, as motivated as ever to, um, you know, complete this research and development journey. So that is the story, Brittany.
1: Wow. I have questions. <laughs> um, this is crazy. What a good story. So when you were at first researching, you know, endometriosis on this PubMed and like wondering, well, what are tests exist? when was that? Was that like 2015 or? Yeah, I started, I started looking into it around then. I think that's right. Yeah. And then do you see like a huge change in like, um, wait, has there been a ton of innovation? Like, obviously we're going to talk about your innovation, right. And like what you've been working on, but do you see, like when you look up endometriosis, like similar search results are appearing or have we stepped it up in the last six years or not?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think on the therapeutic side, um, there has been a lot of progress even since dot lab has been around. So, um, when we were getting started, the, uh, the classic therapy for endometriosis, you know, was, and, and arguably is Lupron, um, which is a GNRH agonist. Um, and since the early days of dot lab, a whole, um, additional, um, really group of medicines around GnRH antagonists have emerged. So, you know, recently AbbVie, as you may know, um, won approval for Oralisa, uh, which is a GnRH antagonist, uh, Elagolix. And, you know, I think that there are two components that are, are so important and go hand in hand. There's the, um, the diagnostic side and the therapeutic side. I think, you know, the therapies that are available, though, can only help women if they, they or their physicians know that they have the disease. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, laparoscopy was first performed over 100 years ago. And I when I was really interested in um, devoting this chapter and in, in my life to was thinking about, well, how can we shorten that diagnostic delay? So um, with a non-invasive test that doesn't require, you know, surgery, while not looking to replace surgery, because, you know, surgery serves many purposes, such as excision, etc. It was really just of interest to me to think about, okay, you know, women's health gets 5% of R&D spend um, total. I mean, it's just absolutely... Um, not rocket science to understand why women's health um, is so underserved in so many ways because the dollars aren't there. And what gets me really excited is thinking about you know what what are the biggest challenges in medicine that affect women? Um, where where the the research and development gaps? And you know actually then doing the work to close that gap and have have a product that can help women just on a massive scale. And, and that's what we're doing um, you know, with, with Dot Lab. Uh, just recently, we announced um, a study called Empower, which is the first study of its kind um, to assess endometriosis and, and validate the, the work that we've done over the past five years. So we have wonderful sites and surgeons in our study. Um, It's on clinicaltrials.gov. We'll have a minimum of 750 patients from sites like Stanford, UPenn, um, which is really important because um, even during laparoscopy, according to our scientific advisory board, when laparoscopy is being performed for the purpose of finding endometriosis, the disease is still missed about 50% of the time. So, you know, our first task and what we've been doing is collecting samples. Like you can't just go out, purchase, you know, um, any old samples out there. You need incredibly well-characterized samples to study this disease because the biology of of endometriosis is just um, so misunderstood or there's so much research left to be done. So, um, So that's what I mean by, you know, research and development and just the importance of the nature of the samples
1: yeah yeah that is such a common thread in femtech is that oftentimes the founders of the startups are actually doing the science the basic scientific research beyond around the disease or the ailment because not only are we trying to make the product work really well but literally it's like there's no data we don't even know um, and so you said that there was potent, there was a test on about this uh, to test this protein CA125 but it wasn't like that specific so what are what is dot lab doing what have you made over the last 5 years what's getting tested right now yeah,
0: that's a great question. So our test is based on microRNAs, which are non-coding RNAs, and then combined with a machine learning algorithm in order to confirm the presence of active endometriosis. So um, microRNAs are in the uh, circulating body fluids, and so what the algorithm is doing is looking at you know the different markers in our test and optimizing the performance of the test in as, uh, as broad of a cross-section of, of patients as possible.
1: And so if, what would the future of diagnostics be? If it currently is, you know, you have to go under the knife, what does it look like to use a dot lab test?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think, um, what I would point to at this point is, um, we put out data kind of Describing that back in 2020 that was published in the American Journal of OBGYN, but our our view is that you know um, patients should have our test performed uh, by a physician to you know guide the following care um, in order to um, confirm. The, it's, our, our test is designed to be a rule in test, the presence of endometriosis, so that therapeutic op, op, options out there can be assessed. Mm-hmm. So the first line of therapy for endometriosis is just the birth control pill.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and which a lot of people, I think, maybe don't know that um, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it is possible to try that to manage your disease out of the gate. Um, and then if, if the disease doesn't improve over time, you know, assess other medical therapy options that are out there. Uh, but that should be you know, led under the, the care of a physician.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a blood test, Right. Right. Got it. Wow. So interesting. And um, random question. Are the microRNAs that are potentially signaling for endometriosis only present when the woman is menstruating or all the time? That's a
0: really great question. So that's one of the things that we looked at um, in the paper from 2020 in in AJOG that I mentioned. So um, it appears that um, that there's no correlation to the menstrual cycle. So it can be offered at at any time.
1: Got it. Wow. That is so interesting. And so, you know, do you think that when your lab test gets to market, um, you know, and women are not having to go for laparoscopy discovery surgery, and they can just do a blood draw and figure this out, um, with their physician, Do you do you think that we're going to see a huge spike in endometriosis simply because we're being it's getting diagnosed faster? So that's a
0: really really interesting question. I mean, one thing that I want to clarify is that our test, um, which is called Dot Endo, so it's designed to drive more efficient use of laparoscopy rather than replace it. So um, I thought a lot about the question you just asked. And there are so many factors that will play into it um, because the reality today is we have a misdiagnosis problem, but also an underdiagnosis problem. So how that will affect and implicate, implicate the volume of surgeries or, you know, therapies issued, et cetera, remains to be seen. Um, It would be, it would be speculative for me to say at this point, when we're in a pre-commercial capacity, (laughs) whether laparoscopy will decrease or increase with our test, but what we do uh, believe is that dot endo will help physicians to identify which women are most appropriate for laparoscopy. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's just a huge undertaking to go through the surgery. Um, and so laparoscopy should still be performed if a confirmed diagnosis is important, Mm -hmm. um, or if the patient would potentially benefit from laparoscopy for treatment purposes, i.e., you know, an excision of the disease, which, yeah. uh, you know, obviously a, a blood test can't do. So, um, I think another example of where a confirmed diagnosis, um, could help would be in the possible, uh, if endometriosis is a possible cause of infertility. Yeah. So we would want our dot endo test to assist in a surgeon's decision to conduct a laparoscopy that may, um, involve, removing any visible um, implants and scar tissue that could improve fertility. So, you know, that's why it's so important that um, our test is, is offered under the care of a physician, because it's such a just such a serious and complicated disease.
1: Well, you know, you've been around for a while now. We have a lot of early stage startups listening in. And so did you get funded by like grants? Like, is this something that like governments like had pots of money waiting around to fund somebody working on it? Or, you know, were you able to convince investors to get on board? That's so funny you're asking that. And we did not talk about this in advance, by the way. But uh, but
0: yes, that's, that's actually how we got off the ground was uh, with SBIR grant funding. So Um, in the early stages of the company, like so many scrappy founders out there, it was all about creative bootstrapping and just Mm -hmm. making it work. Um, but there are, you know, real significant costs that if you're an R and D company, you do need to, um, be able to pay for, um, like the intellectual property, freedom to operate searches and due diligence. That's no joke. Mm -hmm. Um, licensing fees, uh, you know, laboratory, um, access in order to get to proof of concept, just, um, so many things. So yes, um, government grants were absolutely instrumental for us. They're non-dilutive. Um, and I would really encourage, um, you know, your listeners to look into that. Um, and then, yes, to, to get back to your question, we did, um, raise our first seed financing back in 2017 Um, and then our series a was in 2019, um, and, um, that, that series a was for $10 million
1: and has been financing, um, the clinical studies that have been underway since then. Amazing. What is your timeline for, you know, maybe listeners who, you know, want to take the test? Like, do you have an estimated timeline of when this will really be out in the market?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think um, the COVID-19 pandemic um, really uh, was a curveball for a while where, you know, the answer to your question is dependent upon um, the getting the results of the studies that are currently underway. Mm -hmm. So the laparoscopies have picked up again, and it's something that, you know, we're monitoring closely all the time. But if the data continues to come in and enrollment um, in the studies, uh, you know, trends, the way it is now, we're, we're looking at um, early next year for um, early access of the test in a commercial capacity
1: and expanding from there. So cool. So awesome. This is, you know... Um... I I just love it. When I see somebody meet someone who's been on this journey for a while now, and like, it looks like it's working because they don't always, always work out. Right. Like, so when it's always, when it is, it's like, oh man, this is so awesome. Um, Yeah. Well, if if we knew it was going to work out, it wouldn't be science. Right.
0: Or it wouldn't be venture capital. There's no venture. So (laughs) true. So true. Yeah. But thank you. I think it's just like, for me, it's just all about, if you look at You know what are the top ten biggest problems or gaps in women's health, and what can you do with your one life to chip away, you know, at that gap that that really calls to you? Um, That's I think that's what it's all about.
1: Yeah. And I had a question about um, tech transfer offices and IP. I found that really interesting that that was like you did that for a while and then you harnessed it for this company. Um, Do you think there's like a bunch of women's health IP and? like a cat like tech transfer offices right now or is there like a huge gap in it like because I also wonder like how many vagina labs are out there like how many labs are out how many femtech labs are out there uh, making discoveries filing IP with their tech transfer office
0: yeah I mean I think you know to go back to something we mentioned earlier um Around 5% of healthcare research spend is focused on women's health. So we're not talking about, you know, a disproportionate representation in our universities and federal labs. However, um, I do think that if, you know, for founders out there, if you're interested in launching an R&D led business, you know, think about what your mode is. It doesn't have to be intellectual property, um, but it could be. And um, if you're not looking to build, you know, a services business um, or a community, or you know, these other types of acute, you know, women's health um, or solutions to these types of these types of problems that are definitely, you know, out there, I do think that um, in licensing technology is is certainly. Um, a way to stand on the shoulders of of the great scientists and researchers um, throughout the country and and world. So, you know, absolutely. I think there are so many um, amazing scientists all over the country who have devoted their lives and careers to women's health research.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ah, well, this has been so much fun. I have two last questions for you that our listeners really love. The first one is if someone wanted to start a femtech company, what's an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating?
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I think there's so many, it's, it's hard to just pick one. Um, but one that, that comes to mind right away is, um, PCOS. The other one that comes to mind is, is menopause. I think that, you know, in a, in ways that parallel endometriosis um, PCOS is quite complex as well. And um, there's a journey to diagnosis there. I think um, I think with menopause, there's been a lot of great progress around symptom tracking, which is really important, but there's a lot more work to do.
1: Yeah. Tracking is not (laughs) like Avoiding symptoms or helping that, yeah. But that's where we need to start because we literally are missing the data. We're missing. We don't yeah. even have the data sets. Yep, yeah, that's right. Um, and our last question is: What do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think that it just needs growth and capital overall. I mean, I. I do think that we're definitely on the right track and the Google searches that you mentioned, like, I think that's indicative of so much progress, but companies just do need um, more capital behind, you know, the, the big research and development problems, frankly. Um, I think that's a big gap because incentives are not necessarily aligned, you know, to take a check from a venture capitalist who wants to see growth on a certain timeline um, but you need to do the R&D work first. Yeah. So yeah. I do think that that is improving. And you know, we've um, been so fortunate to work with some real champions um, of, you know, of women's health and, and this particular disease. But, um, but it's still a problem. And, and I think that venture capital is, um, at the end of the day, you know, for founders, taking a VC check is selling a part of your company. You know, I think it's it's sometimes glamorized, and um, and you may see the TechCrunch headlines talking about these you know giant raises, etc. But at the end of the day, all it is is a transaction in which you're giving up ownership of of your baby, your company. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I think that um, I think that founders just need to be really, really thoughtful, especially in the early stages, about. Who just you know what you're signing up for and who you're taking money from and and for what um, are expectations aligned around milestones et cetera um, yeah. and I think you know we all know the the grim reality for female founders and, and femtech so um, while things are are trending the right direction there's still a lot more work to do
1: yeah were you the person out on the front lines fundraising
0: yes absolutely
1: yeah. And what was that experience like? Did you feel like you had to do a lot of education of people that without uteruses about what it was?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you have a a 45 minute meeting, that's 40 minutes of it
1: for sure. Oh, my gosh. But I think, you know, the
0: intentions are good. It's just, it's, it's the reality.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you think, though, that blockchain startups spend 40 minutes describing it? Or do you think people in the room just, like, agree, like, that it's maybe, you know, they're like, you're the expert, I believe you, let's get into the business model. Whereas, like, women, I feel like people are like, wait, 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 this is so mysterious, <laughs> like you must prove, tell me more, you know, like well,
0: I, I've i never pitched a blockchain company. Uh, <laughs> that didn't exist. That didn't exist when I was on the investing side, really. But I think um I think or at least it wasn't a hot area. But you know, I think if if you're if you're in say a um, I don't know, if you're building a food delivery business or something else that that definitely has a, a big opportunity but um, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory what you're building. Yes. I I think the educational hurdles are um, are potentially different in pitch meetings. However, I think that um, a lot of investors are, um, are very aware that often, you know, the areas that they may not understand is also where the opportunity exists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the case of endometriosis, um, this disease affects one in 10 women worldwide. And there's so few examples in medicine of an opportunity like this, that's still out there. So I I do, I do think that it's, you know, kind of a double-edged sword where the educational hurdle is certainly there, um, for so many areas of women's health, but it's also just such a big opportunity.
1: Yeah. that The way you framed it like that, because you, I thought about it in the beginning of the interview too, the way you framed it though was like, there are not that many opportunities in medicine where one in 10 people have this thing and a diagnostics test is still like not here. Like, wow. When yeah. you say that, I wonder why the heck aren't pharmaceuticals putting more money into R&D about this opportunity though? It's just like, is because obviously numbers are not the issue. Like the, we have, you have the numbers there, like diagnostic test cost times, how many people might have it, you know? Like, why do you have any idea, any philosophy that you think about maybe like at night before you go to bed? Like, why are they not funding this? Like, what are we (laughs) missing? I wonder. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think if,
0: if this were easy, you know, a test like ours would exist already and it doesn't, there's, there's nothing on the market. Um, I have heard about, you know, various companies looking at this opportunity, but you know, dot lab is the only company that I've seen that's put forward validation data. You can look at our publications on our website. You know, this is real science yeah. and it's, it's, you know, it, the, the evidence is self-explanatory. And at the end of the day, that's, that's what matters. Um, I think, you know, to your point, um, it's it's really why pharma is not engaged. I mean, therapeutic um or drug development and diagnostic uh, research and development are just two completely different worlds. Mm. Um and so I think it's just a, a really different skill set and um and you know requires a different organization and different type of um of leadership. Yeah.
1: So well, your investors are in luck because I can imagine this is going to be a very attractive acquisition by one of those pharma companies because uh, talk about, you know, something in their portfolio that no one else has, right?
0: Well, thank you, Brittany. Yeah, I think, um, <laughs> you know, we are are still working away and, and there's nothing more motivating than um, just, you know, thinking about why we're doing this work. We. Yeah. Hear from so many patients of all different ages, um, you know, from girls in their early teens who maybe just started menstruating all the way up through, you know, women in their 40s who um, talk about how, you know, if they're young girls, they didn't go out for sports or they didn't go out for the school play because of their pelvic pain and their severe cramps. And, you know, they're afraid of what, you know, starting, starting their periods could do on the day of a big game or the day of the play or whatever it is. And so it's just so, um, it's just so heartbreaking how the entire arc of your life as a woman is so affected by, you know, your period or by um, dysmenorrhea or chronic pelvic pain. And there's no way to get diagnosed other than surgery. So it's just, um, it's, it's incredibly motivating. And, you know, like you said, such a big opportunity.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for all you do. It has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, keep it up. Cannot wait to continue to track dot lab success. And uh, yeah, thank you.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Brittany.
1: Thank you to our sponsor, Witham, the Femtech accounting firm, and thank you listeners for listening to my interview with Heather Bowerman, the COO and founder of DotLab. Too often, women seek treatment for painful periods, pelvic inflammation, painful sex, low back pain, painful bowel movements, intestinal distress, and fertility issues, and they're all told that it's in their head or normal. In reality, an estimated 176 million women, many of these have, having these symptoms, suffer from endometriosis. Dot Lab's test can help clarify if endometriosis is the cause. They are doing such important work. Definitely check Dot Lab out. Already Fem fans, be sure to give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other Femtech founders, investors, and mentors advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up to be a FemPro member for $10 a month and get access to the Femtech Institute, a library of Femtech and startup lessons that are sure to help you advance your startup and teach you more about the Femtech industry. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech book club and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring donation to Femtech Focus, which is a 501c3 nonprofit and relies on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.